Beginning today, we would come to the climax of the reason for Jesus coming to earth. He did not come primarily to live, but he came primarily to die, to die for the sins of the world. He had a three to three and a half year ministry, public ministry. The first year was pretty much the year of obscurity, baptism, temptations, a few miracles, calling of disciples. The second year was called the year of popularity, great crowds, great throngs of people, the, the great miracles of healing and the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, thousands and thousands of people following him everywhere he went. The third year, the crowds began to melt away because he began to move away from the physical benefits of what it meant to be a follower of his to the spiritual benefits. They were following many of them because they wanted physical healing or they wanted physical food. And he was trying to show them that what he was primarily concerned with was spiritual food, spiritual healing, and spiritual life. And so he started moving in, in that direction in his preaching. And some of the crowds, uh, those who had come just for the personal benefits that accrued to them, began to melt away. So many at one time that Jesus, in what I think are some of the saddest words he ever spoke, looked at his 12 disciples and said, are you going to go away also? Are you going to leave me? He was moving now toward the cross. In those last few weeks and months, he was moving toward Jerusalem, following the Mount of Transfiguration, down to Jericho, up to Bethany, healing of Lazarus, raising Lazarus from the dead. The crowds began to clamor to kill him. The Pharisees wanted to kill him and Lazarus. So Jesus left for a while, went away into Perea, into other parts of Judea, waiting because he knew, for there was a timing in the affairs of God. In the fullness of time, Jesus came, and he planned it so that his triumphal entry would be on the first day of the final week of the, of the week of the Passover, the final week of his earthly life. He came to Bethany in all probability and observed the Sabbath there. And then on Monday, the events of the triumphal entry began. It came about, he approached Bethany near the mount, which is called Olivet. And he sent two of his disciples, as I read to you a moment ago, in to get a donkey and uh, just take the donkey and said, if anyone asks you whose donkey that is, why are you doing it? Just tell them the master needs it. Jesus said, tell them that. If anyone asks you, just tell them the master needs it. The master needs it. Obviously, this was pre-planned. He knew that this was to take place. And here he was, ready for the triumphal entry. He gets on that donkey rides up over the brow of the Mount of Olives, which is, Bethany is only about three miles from Jerusalem, and then he crests on that mountain, and then he rides down the path that leads into the city, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were thronging about him. They estimate that two to three million people were in the city of Jerusalem for the observance of the Passover. Two to three million the city of Jerusalem today has a population of about 500,000. Can you imagine two to three million people in that city? And here Jesus comes riding on this donkey. 
Now, there is in this remarkable story more than I have ever seen before, and I've studied it in, in a new way in the last few weeks and, and seen things in it that I had not seen before and which I want to share with you. For we have here in this story two things. We have both paradox and prophecy. Paradox and prophecy. What he was doing was the fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy from both Isaiah and Zechariah prophesied that the king would come riding on a donkey. Who ever heard of a king riding on a donkey? The lowest, uh, lowest of beasts, the beast of burden. And he rides into the city of Jerusalem, the crowds clamoring, screaming, palm branches, people throwing their clothes on the ground, the crowds exploding with enthusiasm to such a degree that the Pharisees told Jesus to tell the crowd to be quiet. Tell the crowd to be quiet. And Jesus said, why, if they don't cry out, these very stones will cry out. He was coming to publicly, unashamedly, courageously affirm his deity. And in this event, a number of things are taking place. Number one, he is moving from divinity to dependence. We'd already seen hints of this earlier in his ministry. He was divine. He was sovereign. But the sovereign God needs us. It is in the plan of God. It is in the sovereign plan of God that there are certain things that will not be done unless we do them. He makes that clear when he says to his disciples early on, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day for night comes when no man can work. We, in the sovereign plan of God, there are some things that we must do. We must do. There are certain things that Jesus asked for to help himself. There were certain things that Jesus borrowed. He was seated on a well in Sychar in the middle of the day, a hot day. And his disciples had gone into town. He was there alone. And a woman came out of town, a woman who'd been married five times and was now living with a man who was not her husband. And she came out to get water. And Jesus asked of this Samaritan woman, will you give me a drink? What a paradox. He who was the water of life Ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. Thousands were following him and were hungry. They needed something to eat. And Jesus borrowed five loaves and two fishes from a little boy. What a paradox. He who is the bread of life had to borrow some bread to feed 5,000. God's sovereign power decrees that there are certain things that we're to do that if we do not do, he will be limited. His work will be hindered. He had to borrow a boat to preach from one day when the crowds were so large they couldn't see him or hear him, so he got in one of the boats on Galilee and pushed out a little from the shore so he could speak to the great crowd of people who had come to hear him. And here he is borrowing a donkey, a donkey of all things. And then a few days later, 
He borrowed a tomb. He only used it for three days, but he borrowed a tomb. There's some things that God has chosen not to do without us. There's certain things that will be, not be done for the work of God in our world if we do not do them. We must work the works of him who sent me. There's certain things that we can do that if we do not do them, they will not be accomplished. For example, when Paul had that dramatic experience on the Damascus Road and fell in the dust of the road, and he had a conversation, a personal conversation with Jesus, and he asked Jesus, what must I do? And the Lord said to him, did, he, did the Lord tell uh, Paul how to be saved? No, he did not. He said, get up and go into the city of Damascus, to the street called Straight, to the house of Ananias, and that man will come tell you what to do. Jesus using human instrumentality to fulfill his purpose. Cornelius, a Gentile, non-Christian, non-Jew, wanted to know about God. The angels of the Lord appeared to him. Read it in the book of Acts. And the angels of God told Cornelius what to do. Did they tell Cornelius to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? No. They said, sir, send down to Joppa, today's Tel Aviv. Send down to Joppa, to the city of Joppa, to the house of Simon the Tanner, and there you will find a man named Simon Peter, and he will come tell you what to do to be a Christian. There are certain things that if we do not do them, they will not be done. They will not be done. Jesus never wrote a book, yet he inspired the divine scriptures. He didn't write a line. Jesus never built a house of worship, but millions have been built in his name. He never built a hospital, but thousands upon thousands have been built in his name, and many of them named after him. Never built a school, and yet more education and more schools are done in the name and the cause of Jesus than anyone else. Never painted a picture, and yet more art has been painted depicting this man than anyone that ever lived, the greatest art ever produced. He never wrote any music, but the world's greatest music has been inspired by this man. What a man. But he can't do what he wants to do in our world if we don't cooperate. And I believe he is saying to every one of us today, do you want the 21st century to be different? Then you do it now. You do it now. He has need of you even as he had need of a donkey. You say, well, Buckner, what can I give? I can give very little. What could be less than a donkey? Your little plus God equals much. He's expecting every member of this church to be a part of Vision 2000 to make a difference in the 21st century. If we don't do it, it won't be done, and we will be held accountable to God for our negligence. It will not be done 
if we don't do it. The Lord needs you, me, all of us. However large or small our part can be, every one of us has a part in Jesus' ministry. We do not even know the name of the man who loaned him his donkey. But he was essential to the triumphal entry. And every one of us is essential to this, is, this church's triumphant entry into century 21. Every one of us. He moved from divinity to dependence. He's depending upon us. He's counting upon us. He's counting upon me, counting upon you. Something else. He moved from silence to celebration, to acclamation, to proclamation. I'm sure you've noticed in reading your New Testament, which I hope you do, that often you'd hear Jesus after performing a miracle saying, don't say anything about it. Don't go around talking about it. Uh, kind of keep it quiet. Well, why was he doing that? Because he didn't want people following him for the wrong reason. He did perform miracles, many of them. But he so often would say, keep it quiet. Well, let me read you a couple of the things that he said. 20, 16th chapter of Matthew. He strictly forbid them to tell anyone that he, Jesus, was the Christ. Don't say it yet. Silence. Mark the fifth chapter. He laid strict charge on them to let nobody hear of this. Seventh chapter of John. He said, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. In the second chapter of John, when Jesus was at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, and his mother came to him and said, they have run out of wine. You need to do something to solve this problem. Do you know what Jesus said? He said, my hour has not yet come. But in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John, doing, during and following the triumphal entry, Jesus declared, my hour has come. He moved from silence to celebration, to proclamation. The hour had come. God's clock had struck redemption time. Now listen. Once Jesus acknowledged and encouraged praise and acclaim of him as the Messiah, the moment he did that, and he did it here, the moment he openly, publicly, with enthusiasm, said, why, if these people don't shout it, the stones will shout it. I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the Redeemer of the world. The moment, the very moment that he publicly acknowledged that, then all the world became responsible to one of two choices. They faced one of two choices. We face one of two choices. Once he has acknowledged who he is openly and unashamedly, accepting the acclaim of the crowds and the fulfillment of the prophecy, there are two choices open to them and two choices open to us. It's either, it's either Christ or Caesar. Who will be your king?
The things of this world or the things of the next world? Political power, spiritual power. Force, love. Selfishness, service. Getting, giving. Will Durant, in that great vo- those great volumes of history which he wrote, is one volume entitled Caesar and Christ. That's the issue. That's the issue in every generation. That's the issue in our generation. It was the issue then. Who's first in your life? The things of this world? The Caesar things? Or the things of the next world? The Christ things? He moved from silence to celebration, acclamation, and proclamation. And he also moved from exclusion to inclusion. Judaism was very exclusive. Even Jesus, early in his ministry, said, I've come to speak only to the sheep of the house of Israel. But you see him moving and moving and moving more and more outside of the exclusivism of Judaism. If you're familiar at all with the construction of the temple, the temple covered acres and acres and acres. It was a huge place. And on the outside of the boundary of it was a wall about two or three feet high, and it was called the wall of partition. And no one except a Jew could go inside of that wall. There were a few entrances to it, and on each entrance were these words, any Gentile who passes through this door into this holy territory will be killed. You could come in if you were a Jew. There was an outer court for the Jews, for the people. There was a court for the women, separate from the men. There was a little court, a special court over here, segregated for the lepers. And then inside was the court of the priests. Only they could go inside. And then inside the Holy of Holies, only one could go. That on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest. It was a hierarchical system. And you could only get in if you met certain circumstances religiously. So here is Jesus moving from exclusion to inclusion because at the culmination of his triumphal entry, what did he do? He got off that donkey and he walked into the temple where they were money changers, were changing money, and it was a corrupt event. It was a horrible thing they were doing in the name of God, making money for themselves. It was, it was despicable and contemptible. And Jesus walked in there and he cleaned the temple out. He turned over the tables, turned loose the cattle, drove the people out. Well, I can see those mighty muscles of his that were tempered under the hot sun, working as a carpenter in Nazareth across those years, glistening with sweat as he said, you have made my father's house into a den of thieves. And he turned the tables over. He cleansed the temple. Oh, they were back the next day. They set up business as usual. But he made a statement. He made a powerful statement by cleansing the temple. Because what he said was this. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Now get this. For all people. Not just Jewish people, not just priests, not just Levites, not just Pharisees, not just Sadducees, not just the religious My house 
shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The inclusiveness of Christ. Whosoever will may come, he said. Whosoever will. And just a few feet over there, not far away, standing behind that wall were some Greeks who were not allowed into the temple area because they were Gentiles. Standing over there were Greeks. And they called one of Jesus' disciples over, Philip. And they said, hey, uh, we'd like to see Jesus. And, and Philip was kind of uh, nonplussed by the whole thing, so he didn't know what to do. So he went over and he got Andrew. And, and he said, uh, said, Andy, what are we going to do about this? said, there's some Greeks over there that want to see Jesus. And Andrew said, well, let me tell the master about it. So he went up to Jesus and he said, Jesus, there's some Greeks over here that want to see you. They want to meet you. And if you read it in your Bible, Jesus just exploded with exaltation. He saw his ministry as one that was going to reach out to the whole world. We would see Jesus, the Greeks were saying. And my friend, I say to you, that's what the whole world is saying today. We want to see Jesus. We want to see him unvarnished by ecclesiastical veneer. We want to see him. And then he said this, if I be lifted up from the earth, referring to his crucifixion that was going to take place not many days later, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. That's the theme of that stained glass window. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Do you hear the inclusiveness of Jesus Christ? This house of prayer is to be a house of prayer, a house of praise, a house of worship for all people. Whosoever will may come. He's been lifted up, and whosoever will may come. All who call upon me shall be saved. I tell you, my friend, any church, any Christian organization, professing Christian organization that excludes people for one reason or another needs to drop the name of Christ from their name. irrespective of your race, your color, your background, your morals, your immorality, whatever it might be, he has come to save the whole world. I know churches, many churches, that will not allow anyone who's been divorced to to teach in Sunday school. I know Bible study groups that will not allow anyone who's been divorced to teach the Bible. How can they call themselves Christian? My house should be called a house of prayer for all people. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people unto me. Not just the good people, the moral people, the educated people, the white people, the respectable people, all people. Whosoever will may come. He moved from exclusion to inclusion. And isn't it tragic that across the years, the church has fallen back into exclusion? for shame. Then final word, there are many that could be said, but let me say this, for I think it may be the most important. We have here a redefinition of power. Jesus by riding a donkey. Who ever heard of a king riding a donkey? Here's a redefinition of power. Can you imagine Pilate looking out of his palace and seeing Jesus riding that donkey and all those thousands of people coming down there thinking, what a joke. You know what Jesus was doing? He was ridiculing political power. 
For kings don't ride donkeys. They ride white horses. They ride chariots. They ride in horse-drawn carriages. They ride in limousines. No, the king of this world rides a donkey. He is making a parody of power. You know why? Because political power cannot change the human heart. It never has and it never will. Political power, Caesar power, never changed a human attitude, a human heart, a human spirit. Toynbee, the great historian, wrote, 21 great civilizations, the rise and fall of 21 great civilizations, exegetes the text, the wages of sin is death. And will be the 22nd century. For all of the kingdoms of this world will pass away. And only the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ will last forever. Here Jesus is making a, a parody of power of the Caesars of the world who fret and strut their hour upon the stage and then are gone forever. A redefinition of power. Cleansing the temple. A redefinition of religion. The impotence of institutionalized religion to change the human heart. That's why he cleansed the temple. He was making a statement that religion will not change your life. Never has, never will. Oh, it may change our outward behavior for a period of time, but only the new birth of the Spirit of God in a person with Jesus Christ becoming King of kings and Lord of lords in their life will change the human heart. Politics cannot do it. Culture cannot do it. Religion cannot do it. Only Christ can change the human heart. So here on Palm Sunday, Jesus flung down the gauntlet of God's love and grace in the face of force and fear. And the battle was joined. It lasted one week. For one week from this very moment, Jesus rose from the dead, triumphant over death and the grave. And Caesar had met his Waterloo, King of kings and Lord of lords. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Caesar, take off your crown and put it at the feet of Jesus. Pharaoh, Cyrus, Alexander, Napoleon, Stalin, 
Hitler, Saddam, you name them, take off your crown and place them at the feet of Jesus. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. Jesus declared, Jesus declared, my hour has come. This church's hour has come. The 21st century in San Antonio is dependent upon what we do in this hour. Our hour has come as a church. And our hour individually has come. It's decision time for every one of us. Will it be Caesar or Christ? If you've never trusted him as Savior, your hour has come. Today's the day and now's the time. If you've never committed your life to him, to put him first in your life, to be not only your Savior but your Lord, your King, your Master, your hour has come. Today's the day. Now's the time to do it, to come forward in a rededication, to come and kneel and pray, return to your seat without saying a word to me if that's your preference. Or if you're a Christian to say, I want to be a part of his church. I want to be a part of those who are proclaiming Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, a church that's inclusive, a church that welcomes anyone irrespective of who they are or where they're coming from or what they've done. For whosoever will may come to Christ and whosoever will may come to this church. And we invite you to come. It's the Lord's invitation and it's my hour and your hour and our hour. Act upon it. Come. Let's stand and sing.